0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle eBook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Well, hello there, Junkie. I am out of the office this week, but I am writing away. Turns out that a couple of years ago, I agreed to do a short story for a big sci-fi property, which I can't mention. Then that project got canceled, and I forgot about it. And that project got reactivated, and I still forgot about it. And uh, about a week ago, I was informed that my story was due toot-sweet, if that's the right phrase. Toot-sweet, I think it is. Yes, I think it is. So, sometimes my brain, not so much. So, I am traveling for a friend's wedding, and while I am there, I am writing away. I will be back to GFL 7 shortly. As I recorded this episode nine days early, hell, I might already be back on GFL 7. I don't know. No, we do not have a completion date, a publication date, a pre-order date, etc. for GFL 7. So let me get you caught up on the story, then we're all going to go oogle a fat-bottomed girl. Previously on The Stone Wolves Vanaka convinced Killian to continue a dangerous job, but Killian is only one-fourth of the crew of the Oleran. For Fanaka to get what she wants, she needs buy-in from Zan, Beans, and Aya. Chapter 5. Fat-Bottomed Girl That thing is a bomb waiting to go off, Beans said, his schmeck's head eyeing the sky. Aya, we should go ba back inside. Midnight at the Uzo-Min spaceport just outside of Riss. The port was the only industry Riss had to offer, really, unless you counted the veil trade. It was still all kinds of hot, even under the shade of the Oleron's left wing. Aya slid her sleeves up to her shoulders. She didn't like to show skin, but wow, the heat. If she ever wore dresses or shorts, she did not, because she got enough leering steers as it was when she was covered head to toe. This would have been the time for skimpy things like that. Aya and Beans stood near the extended ramp of Hold 5. Zan's flying schmeck hovered close by. Aya didn't like the looks of the descending ship any more than Beans did. So thin, so small you could see the outline of the punch drive inside it. It looked like a kid's drawing. Who in the galaxy would pilot such a suicide missile? Ba back inside, Beans said again. At this range, Zan said, that small amount of distance will not matter. If that hot rod goes, so goes the Oleran. Beans' schmeck raised a metal hand to a metal head, scratched with one metal finger. Hmm, he said. Aya didn't like this. It did not compute, not a damned bit of it. The impossible craft dropped from the night sky like an anvil, down onto the sand-strewn docking pad—sand was on everything in this shucking place—barely missing the Oleron and firing its retro rockets at the last possible instant to safely, if haphazardly, land nearby. The two ships couldn't be more different. Compared to the thin ship's anorexic yet pregnant-with-a-punch-drive supermodel profile, the Oleran was thick a big-bootied barmaid. The Oleron was built, for hauling. She was seven or eight times larger overall, right at the upper threshold of atmospheric capable craft. The anorexic yet pregnant ship's main hatch opened, stairs lowered. Skipper stepped out, accompanied by a raven-haired, cyborg-eyed woman. She was Grandmaville, probably in her sixties, but her age hardly mattered. She was over two meters tall, long black jacket, open, with a hood pulled back. Beneath the jacket, she wore gray body armor, two sidearms, each held in a black hip holster. A battered watchbot—maybe it was a watchbot, the beat-up silver ball with spider legs, could have been a fashion statement—walked in her shadow, so close the woman would have tripped over it if she turned too quickly. She had packed light. She carried only a small black duffel bag. Nothing soft about that woman. No given those eyes. That eye, anyway, the biological one, showed no hint of compromise. Skipper looked miserable in the woman's company. More miserable than usual, anyway. Standing next to her, his old-timey clothes looked even more archaic. His pants were more patch than original fabric. Honestly. Did the man have to scour the net to find antique garment patterns for the clothing fabricator? The woman looked at Aya and Beans, gave them a big smile that seemed incompatible with her scarred skin, as if the grin was an ill-fitting part she'd hammered home with bent nails. Crew, this is Fanaka Tolvaj, Skipper said, a friend of mine from way back when. The woman pressed her hands together into a prayer-like pose. It was the Anjali Mudra, Aya noted, a respectful gesture practiced on Earth and fortress among Buddhists and other faiths. Based on her skin, Fanaka did not look like she was from the Tower Republic. An earther, perhaps? A pleasure, Bean said, as his schmeck hands mimicked the gesture. I'd very much like to learn more about our skipper
2: from way back when. He placed his cards very close to his chest. Yep, yep.
1: Zan's drone rose a few feet. He does not play his cards close with me. I have known him longer than anyone. The tall stranger looked at the battered teddy bear taped to the drone's head. Almost anyone, Fanaka said. The drone drifted closer to the woman, stopping and hovering just a centimeter or two outside the range that could be considered personal space. You got a problem with what you see? Vanaka asked.
2: I have not yet
1: decided, Zan said. Could an expressionless teddy bear suddenly look angry? Zan sure did. Context was everything. Vanaka is our guest, Skipper said. Treat her with respect. He brusquely introduced Zan as his navigator and Beans as his engineer. He introduced Aya. As his comms expert, and Aya wondered if she would always feel that flush of pride when he did that, or if that would soon wear off. Fanaka's eye flitted across eyes, piercings, her sleeve tattoo, and, inevitably, to the amethyst skin, the tattoos failed to conceal. That expression on the woman's face, was that recognition? No, of course not. It was intrigue, or more likely, lust. No surprise. People were always intrigued by Aya's skin. Purple, more specifically amethyst, was a 1 in 10 million mutation in the Tower Republic. Sure, some people opted for cosmetic surgery, going to the League of Planet Sculptors to acquire that oh so rare shade, but even the best cosmetic surgeons couldn't get it quite right. While they could do perfect deep blue or bleach white skin in their sleep, When they shot for amethyst, it always wound up splotchy. The real thing? A uniform tone all over the entire body? While a brighter purple was more common, sports reporter Yolanda Davenport had that shade, among the galaxy's 3 billion-plus humans of tower descent, there probably weren't even 3,000 of them with eyes-deep, amethyst skin take all of humanity into consideration, some 82 trillion people, and Aya's skin tone appeared only 000000004 percent of the time, which meant that she was 1 in 27 billion. Aya knew that many people fetishized her and those who looked like her. Some humans long for adding a piece of purple to the notches on their bedpost. It was so dehumanizing. People like that thought of Aya as nothing more than an object to be acquired, as if her thoughts and hopes and dreams didn't matter. She had learned that in the service. Her too-familiar anger, which always seemed to swim just under the waterline inside her, flared bright and red. She wanted to be known for her abilities, her brain, not Because she'd been born a freak. I've been all over the galaxy, Fanaka said. I've seen everything, but I've never seen anyone like you. Face to face, I mean. Here we shucking go. Yeah, Aya said. I'm a real collectible, aren't I? Skipper grunted. Dial it down, Aya. Fanaka smiled in an odd way. It's all right, killer. She said. Let me have it, kiddo. Kiddo? The woman might as well have poked Aya with a needle. Let me guess, Aya said. Maybe this is the part where you call me a half breed and spit in my face. I get that sometimes. Or are you going to try and figure out which planets my mom and dad are from? I get that even more. Maybe you'll ask me what it's like being me, as if that's any of your shucking business. Or maybe you'll try to get me to sleep with you so you can tell all your friends that you got the rarest of the rare. I get that most of all. Fanaka's eye softened. I'm not talking about your color, she said. I'm talking about that dragon tattoo on your forearm. It's Fafnir, right? Aya bit back a gasp felt a wash of ice slide through her body. This woman knew? No, she couldn't. Beans's schmeck leaned closer to Aya, gears whirring. You told me that was an ornate stringed instrument called a lute, Beans said. Also, what's a dragon? Aya quickly pulled her sleeves down to her wrists. She should have never slid them up in the first place. Fanaka grinned, the tight smile of a gambler who has rigged the game. I knew a kid with a tat like that, she said. Real smart. Genius, even. He was in league military at just ten years old. Can you believe that? Just ten. He planned assassinations and the like. Aya's throat felt dry. No one had ever noticed her unit insignia before. She'd paid good money to have it inked over, to make it look like the tat and the cover-up were one design. Fanaka knew. If the woman was League Military, Aya's hand moved closer to the knife strapped to her belt. Aya, Skipper said in his I am not shucking around any more voice. I told you that Fanaka is my guest. The tall woman held up both hands, palms out. I'm just saying I thought I'd seen ink similar to that before, she said. Must be my mistake. Wohan bautien. Zan Schmeck drifted to the Oleron's open hatch. We will be
2: more comfortable inside.
1: Ever the peacemaker, that, Zan. Beans, Skipper said. Fanaka ship should fit into hold three. Can you manage that? C-c-c- can do, skipperu It's a lot of weight for our
2: crane, but I will get it done. Zan, can you assist?
1: Have Aya help, Zan said.
2: She needs to learn the loading system, and I have work to do inside the Oleron.
1: Aya noted Zan's tone of voice. It sounded like she didn't want to let the woman out of her sight, so to speak. Something was wrong. Aya thought of pulling the knife, stabbing the tall woman in the throat, right then and there take her chances with Skipper. But that look in his eyes? He was always hunched over, and he was so out of shape, yet Aya had no illusions he could take her out in an instant if he wanted to. She's my guest, he'd said. The Oleran was his. He was the captain. Aya, Bean said, you can work the crane. It's f-, f-, f fun And can someone tell me what a dragon is? It is like... Equiphalant, Zan said, but with wings. Both of you get to work. Beans's big schmeck thumped up the ramp. Aya followed him in. Original donkey-class cargo ships had been out of production for over 170 years. The Oleran was even older than that having been minted in one of the class's first production runs. As far as Killian knew, his 187-year-old pride and joy was the oldest still-functioning ship of its class in the galaxy. Killian had sent Aya, Beans, and Zan about their business. Fanaka wanted a tour of the Oleran, and the crew wasn't needed for that. Fanaka had been in the ship once, many years before, which he wanted to see what had changed. She was like that, always about the details. And this is my quarters, Killian said. Fanaka leaned through the door, looked at the small cabin. Pinter's cross, she said. Can you even fit your big ass in there? That desk looks like a toy. Over the decades, he'd grown so used to the cabin's small size, he didn't think about it. A bed against one wall, just long enough for his seven-foot-tall frame a space of maybe a foot between his bed and the three-drawer dresser which abutted his flip-down desk. The desk was supposed to flip up against the bulkhead when not in use, but he hadn't done that in at least a decade. The thing always hung open, small chair tucked neatly beneath. The cabin was his. He knew it. Why should he change it? The size is fine for me, he said. If you cleaned up your beer bottles, you'd have more space. Her words made him see the room anew. Four empty beer bottles on the desk, a case of empties atop the dresser with a stack of three-folded shirts up against it, and five more empties lined up like fallen soldiers next to the bed. I might at that, he said. She leaned back into the corridor, stood straight. You're the captain, she said. Not to mention the owner of this heap. Why don't you have the captain's quarters? Sewage leak. Killian said. Fanaka didn't need to see what was in the captain's quarters. No one did. No one but him. Sewage leak, she said. He nodded. Yep. Fitting, because this whole ship is a real shitbox. The interior is even worse than the exterior, which looks like it's held together with secondhand duct tape. He didn't mind the insults. Considering what the Olrinn could do, the fact that it looked like it could do nothing at all was always a plus. Still, her dismissal of his ship, a ship that had served her well on several runs, irritated him. Fanaka was such a know-it-all. He wanted to shove a little of that right back in her face, remind her that she didn't know everything. It's a shitbox with stealth capability better than most military ships, he said. We've got top-mounted defensive cannons that skirt the legal limit on weapons in most systems, and we've got tower-made ship-to-ship missiles that are hidden away that go way past that legal limit. On top of that, my fat-bottom girl has two punch drives. Fanaka barked a disbelieving laugh. No ship has two punch drives. That's absolutely insane. Insane like you're... Acid trip chariot out there on the tarmac, maybe so. But come on, killer, two punch drives is technically impossible. Beans's amplified voice cut in, ringing out from the corridor speakerphone. It's quite p- p- possible with the right mind. Yep,
2: yep, yep. Zan is the undisputed brain of punch drive technology, so she gets some credit.
1: I actually get some credit this time. Zan's voice also over the speaker film. But Zan and Killing didn't build
2: all the engine and weapons alternative to the Oleron. No, 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 nope, not one bit, Bean said. Those were things I did. Beans puts the run in Oleron. Yes, he does. Yep, good old Beans. Reliable Beans. Poor, underappreciated Beans. No one thanks him enough for the miraculous double-punch drives or keeping the defensive missile batteries working. Or the comms designed for Aya and all the other aces up our sleeves that get us out of trouble like
1: all the time. Stop it, Killian said. Both of you. Did I ask you to listen in on my conversation with Fanaka? No, Zan said. But you did not ask us to not listen in.
2: Comms are always on, Bean said. Allow me to quote. We are one team, one unit, and we listen to each other. Only personal quarters
1: are exempt. Fanaka laughed. That sounds exactly like you. Thank you, Beans said. I've been working on my human accents. Killian fought back irritation at having his own words used against him. Shut off the shipwide comms, he said. Now. A soft click was the only indication that Beans and Zan had complied. He's got a chip on his shoulder, Fanaka said. I mean, if he has shoulders. I don't want to assume and be speciesist. Sounds like he's overcompensating for something. She had no idea. If she spent enough time in the ship, she would learn firsthand about Beans and his revolutionary attitude. Let me show you the rest of the ship, Killian said. Start with the two punch drives. Show me you can't always get what you want. Some things you don't get to see. Let's start with the cargo holds. In the
0: climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
3: Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it.
1: Skipper's guest knew about Aya's past. The damn tattoo. Aya knew she should have had it removed. She knew she should have. It was invisible, what with all the covering art, unless one knew exactly what one was looking for. Aya had disguised it, but she couldn't bring herself to remove it altogether. It was a part of her past. It was a part of who she was. She'd worked damn hard to earn it. The Fafner Project. They'd recruited her at seven years old, when her test scores rated off the charts. she demonstrated unusual aptitude for communications tech—programming, protocols, code-breaking, the physics behind materials, along with a deep understanding of quantum states and how they could be manipulated. Even in the League of Planets, the system that worshipped science and technology, that prized education above all other things, it was obvious Aya was special. Recruited was a too-friendly word, actually. She'd been seven. What choice did she have? The military gave her dad, a chemist, a high-paying job at a university. Her mom was a VR physicist. The League made her dream come true. They hardwired her brain into a massive ship computer. At this moment, Aya's mother was in deep space studying dark matter. Her head was, at least. And Aya, the little girl then known as Avenita Sabal, was shipped off to the Newton Web Colony. There, she'd entered one of the League's most top-secret programs, the Fafner Project, designed to train child geniuses in the art of war. Aya Papaya, pay attention. Aya came out of her mental spiral. She was on the bridge, sitting in Beans' tiny engineering station as he tried to teach her how to use the Oleron's loading crane. Beans had opted to stay in his Schmeck suit. It was almost too large for use in the bridge. Maybe Fanaka's presence had thrown off his onboard routine and he wanted to continue being the biggest crew member instead of the smallest. Aya greatly preferred him out of the suit. With his fur and eye stalks and little tentacles, he was just so gleaming cute. There were a dozen small holotanks in Beans' little coffin-sized nook, a heavy G-coffin, maybe, as Aya fit in the space and still had a little elbow room, showing different readouts and camera views. All around the nook, colorful holographic icons floated in the air. Sorry, Beansy, she said. I'm listening now. I find that hard to b-, b believe Zan's walking Schmeck entered the bridge, distracting Aya yet again. The rail-thin walking Schmeck was possibly the ugliest of Beans's creations. The right arm was short, with three joints, while the left was two-jointed and hung almost to the floor. One leg came from a construction robot. Aya loved that canary yellow paint, even as chipped and scratched as it was. The other leg was made from what I assumed was a lifting jack, a hydraulic hammer, and, possibly, parts from a small refrigerator. While Zan's flying schmeck had the teddy bear duct tape to it, her walking schmeck's face was a googly-eyed, stuffed yellow elephant held in place by two red bungee cords. Zan was so weird. Out of Zan's two schmecks, the walking one and the flying one I preferred interacting with the walking one. It was less bug-like, perhaps. The walking schmeck strode to the navigator station on the back wall, behind the captain's chair. If the bridge's floor-to-ceiling window was considered due north, Zan's navigator station was south-southwest. Beans's was due east, while Aya's was due west. The entrance to the bridge was due south. Just to the right of the entrance, at the south-southeast, were three jump seats, there in case there were extra sentience on the bridge in a time of high maneuverability. One of the jump seats had been removed, replaced with a wall dock where Beans's big schmeck suit could lock in and be out of the way. Mostly.
2: "'Hiya,'
1: Beans said, quietly, his tone a warning. "'You really need to f- f- focus Now that Zan was here— Aya did need to focus. I'm all ears," Aya said. "Teach me how it works." Beans schmeck turned its attention back to his station. "It's
2: easy to operate the loading crane," he said. "Easy because I made it that way. Normally, I do this from the top so I can see with instruments and my eyes. But you can enter the loading-unloading protocol from any station on the ship.
1: I'll show you how it works." A metal finger pointed at one of the small holo-tanks. "'That is the topside view,' he said. Aya fought back a rude sigh. Yes, she already knew what the top of the ship looked like. The Olren's cargo area resembled a big hex capped by a slightly curved dome. Each slice of hex was a cargo hold, with hold one on the starboard side and connected to the fuselage, counting clockwise to hold six on the port side also connected to the fuselage. Hold 2 on the starboard side and Hold 5 on the port side extended out beyond the hex shape, as those holds were larger and each had a lowerable cargo ramp big enough to facilitate a fully loaded 18-wheel ground truck. The ship's stubby wings extended out from the tops of Holds 5 and 2. A silhouette of the ship resembled a goose with a big butt if said goose had no head and a rectangle with flat sides for a neck. That neck was the fuselage, which consisted of five decks and included living quarters, the mess, machine shops, power plants, punch drives, impulse drives, and more. The neck connected to the hex, where hold six and hold one shared a wall. Atop the dome, a curved ridge ran from the center of that hex to just past the base of the fuselage. The Oleron had top- and bottom-mounted twin 30mm anti-aircraft batteries, both retracted and covered by sliding hatches that kept them from view unless they were needed. As long as the crane was stored, the top battery had a 360-degree firing arc at anything above the Oleron's horizontal line. The bottom battery also had 360 degrees of fire, able to hit anything below that line. Tower made ship-to-ship missile batteries, which always stayed hidden because they were double apex illegal, were mounted on the underside. Step one, open the crane, Bean said. Use the blue icon on the left. I moved the icon. In the tank, she saw the curved ridge split lengthwise down the middle each half, tilting up to reveal a long jib. That jib was original equipment as far as I knew, which meant it was over a century old. Well-made stuff to have lasted this long and still be usable. Step two. Raise the crane. Press and hold the red icon. Aya did. The jib rose on a hydraulic column. As it rose, a thick section extended backward as a counterbalance. Turn it to port. Bean said. I rotated the icon. The jib rotated to port. You center that orange targeting icon on the item to be loaded, Bean said. The claw d- 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 does the rest. She pressed her finger on the floating icon, moved it over Fanaka's ship, and let go. Four multi jointed steel fingers, each five meters long, extended from the jib. Like metal snakes, they splayed out seemed to analyze Fanaka's suicide rocket, then wrapped around it, two fingers to each side. Oh, Bean said.
2: I forgot to have you open the hold. For that, you hit the green icon for whichever hold you're
1: using. A series of green holographic icons showed the numbers 1, 3, 4, and 6. You can't use the crane to load 5 or 2? Nope, 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 Bean said. The roofs of those aren't rotatable. Side-load only, by ground vehicle or by hand. She pressed the three. As I watched, the roof above hold three rose slightly, then rotated over the roof of hold two, like a pie slice anchored at the tip. That exposed hold three. The crane rotated, the steel fingers extended, lowering Fanaka's ship inside. There wasn't much room to spare, but it fit. I designed that claw, Bean said. Zan
2: helped me build it. The old one was terrible. Its testicles were all limp and damaged.
1: Aya leaned back. Uh, testicles? Tentacles, Zan said. N.T., Beans. Big difference. Aya, if you are finished avoiding your real duties, please get to your station. We have work to do. As nice as Beans was, Zan was the opposite. Such a jerk. All the shocking time. Today, Aya. Uh... Zan's voice came from speaker film hidden somewhere behind the yellow elephant. I need launch clearances from spaceport control. Talking to stuffed animals was just one of the bizarre things about this ship. Ah, uh, I'm helping Beans. I said, "You heard Skipper order me to help Beans. What's your problem, Zan?" My problem is I do not have those clearances. Do you think working a crane that requires only to move a few icons gives you the afternoon off? Perhaps you think it is time for you to go do yet another radcast. Aya bristled. Since she joined the crew six weeks ago, her deal with Skipper had been simple. Triple encrypt any transmissions to keep the heat off the Oleran keep Skipper informed of any business opportunities, and don't do any radcasts from the ship. Aya's deal, however, did not include let the agoraphobe push me around all day. Zan never showed her real self, even on this speck of a starship. How was Aya supposed to fit in here when Zan was always riding her ass? Right now, I assume you feel maligned, Zan said. You are
2: probably thinking I am not being fair.
1: I realized she was glaring at a stuffed elephant, not a real sentient, and looked away. Sometimes, Zan seemed to possess telepathy. Yes, I know you transmitted a radcast yesterday, Zan said. If you aspire to be part of this crew, it is best you tell me what you do, rather than thinking I will not find out. I do not like having to dig for the information I need to ensure the safety of my ship. Aya's temper flared. It's not your ship, she said. It's Skipper's. My deal is with him, not you. As impossible as it was, Aya seemed to feel the stuffed elephant's googly eyes staring at her. If that is what you want to believe, the yellow elephant said, then you will not last here. Think of me as the ship, mother.
2: I ensure the safety of everyone aboard. Now, no further insubordination from you. Get to work and do what I asked you to do.
1: I sighed and walked to her station, sliding into the seat that Beans had built specifically for her Aya instantly felt better. The first time she'd been inside the Oleron, she'd likened it to looking at a technological patchwork quilt. Elements of navigation systems, engines, computer cores, and even interiors that hailed from numerous races. Black Ops maneuvering thrusters that might as well have been magic for how they made the Oleron as nimble as a ship half its size. Engineering-wise, the mixed tech was a big deal. While self-contained, individual systems from different species were used for specific purposes, like a quith-built sensor array or a sclerno million-thread information processor. Fusing the technologies of multiple species into one unified suite was downright unheard of. And yet, that was what Beans had done. Just like the Schmecks he'd claimed he'd built on the reef, Beans had somehow stitched the Olrin together with home-brewed parts, diverse tech, and his own programming code. The fat-bottomed girl, that's what Skipper liked to call the Oleran. I had told him at least a dozen times that it should be a fat-bottomed person, but Killian thought he knew everything, just like Zan did, was a one-of-a-kind craft that poached the best bits from all the race's unique approaches to spaceflight. Maneuverability, inspired by Hurrah fighter craft, the galaxy's best. Touch-sensitive comm systems, cribbed from key ships. Point defense missiles, From decommissioned tower ships, missiles Beans helped keep hidden from potential systems police inspections, modified League of Planets stealth capability, the list went on and on. The secret to making it all work, Beans had later told her, was history. If one truly understands how a race sees itself in relation to its homeworld and to the universe around it, one can begin to understand how that race thinks. Do that and one can glean how things like physicality, body type, intellect, and culture can influence a race's spacefaring technologies. Beans said that a species' evolutionary history was woven into the very fabric of that species' tech. Inscrutable, perhaps, but to Beans, those core frameworks were as plain as day. Aya slid her hands atop her calm station touch-reading controls. Like snakeskin, in a way cool and pebbly, against her palms and fingers. This was key tech that Beans had modified for her. This suite was Apex, man. Apex. When Key spoke, they did so with that nasty, guttural language. Aya knew she shouldn't have that prejudicial bias, because Key communicating in their native tongue couldn't really be nasty. It only sounded that way to her privileged human ears. The species' primary mode of communication, though, wasn't verbal at all. It came from skin-to-skin contact. Key could literally read one another's nervous signals. That was why they clustered into those big, wriggly balls. Key incorporated this phenomenon throughout their ships. The bridge of a key ship was a big metal sphere, around which the command crew clung. Like a human crew, each key had a specific task navigations, weapons, engineering, etc., yet they could talk to each other at the speed of thought. They reacted to commands instantly, using controls that attached to their skin, controls that read their nerve impulses. Beans had modified a key system like that for Aya. When she was with the Fafnir Project, the League had the galaxy's best tech and its special forces had the best tech in the League. Aya had used the usual palm-ups and hologrips. grips She'd thought that gear was the shine and the gleam, yet Beans' tweaks to a third-hand key system provided her with an interface ten times faster than anything she'd used while in Fafnir. Beans, that little guy, was really something. The League had thought Aya was special. That's what Beans was. Special. Clearance one of three acquired, Aya said. Received. Zan Schmeck said. Six weeks aboard, and Aya had still not seen the real Zan. Only those Schmecks with various stuffed animals taped to their heads. Zan's personal quarters took up all of Hold 2. It always seemed a bit human in that area, which meant Hold 2 had water and a lot of it. Was Zan a key, an aquas, or a dolphin? It didn't matter. Aya just knew she would never find out. She didn't fit in here. Scary, sad skipper. Weird, brilliant, radical-minded beans. Methodical, brook-no-bunk, Zan. Those three had been together for years. They were a family. Aya wanted to be a part of that family. She'd adored the Oleron from the moment she'd come aboard. In her time in the Fafnir Project, she'd been surrounded by the perfection of league tech graceful lines, no dirt, all things clean and polished. Even the cold cobalt system, the Nemeric supercomputer that made up both her mission training and her actual missions, was visually boring and sterile, a stupid blue block that was all flat planes and right angles. The cold cobalt had no personality. The fat-bottomed person, on the other hand, was nothing but personality. The ship seemed more dumpster than cargo hauler, more ghetto swap meat than meticulously engineered machine. The Ulleran's command bridge was no exception. The circular chamber seemed to celebrate no-frills practicality. When something became obsolete, if it wasn't in the way, Skipper just left it there. Case in point, a degassed air sphere, last used when the comms crew member had been a hurrah. The comms operator that replaced the hurrah had been a human from the purest nation who would have fixed religious icons to the outside of the sphere. Crucifixes, stars of David, a star and crescent of Islam, an auspicious Dharma wheel of Buddhism. The comms operator had, apparently, believed these objects would protect him from the devilish forces of his alien crewmates. That comms operator, obviously, hadn't lasted long. Skipper had fired him, a few months before the Oleran pulled off an impossible maneuver at Rieger II to save Aya from the Natvig, a League death squad. She shuddered, remembering. She'd been sure it was over for her, that she'd wind up burnt carbon. The Natvig had tracked her down. She had run out of places to hide. Then, one of her many anonymous Radcast fans, the sentience she called her Freaks, had got her a message a ship was coming to save her. A ship called the Oleron. Aya had assumed it was a setup by the League to lure her out of hiding so the Natveg could finish her off. But with those murderers closing in, she'd had no choice but to follow her freak's instruction and hope for the best. Another person might have prayed for the best, but Aya would never pray to anyone or for anyone. She had been told to go to an outdoor mall of all places. Thousands of sentients, any of them, could have been part of the Natvig. Then fire alarms blared through the mall, and the PA screamed for everyone to get to safety because of a guild bomb threat. The place emptied out. Aya stayed. So did the Natvig. She hid in a clothing store, crying, knowing her life was over. That was when the Oleron dropped out of the sky. Rockets roaring, it dropped at such a speed it should have slammed into the mall and destroyed most of a city block. Instead, the ship braked at an impossible rate and landed with a feather touch. Aya had sprinted for the cargo ship, knowing it was her only hope. The first sniper shot came from behind, grazed her right shoulder. The Oleron returned fire, making the sniper's second shot go wide. The Oleron's ramp opened. Inside was a misshapen, eight foot tall hodgepodge of mechanics that Aya would soon come to know as Beans. Before she was up the ramp, the Oleron was lifting off, full anti grav combined with old timey chemical thrusters. The cargo ship rose fast, so fast, even as Beans hauled Aya in. Only when the ramp finally sealed shut did she know she was safe. The NatVig assassins had infiltrated Planetary Union territory to conduct their operation on Rieger II, but blending in on the ground was a far cry from trying to initiate a ship-to-ship battle. If they'd even had a ship capable of it, they wouldn't dare risk bringing the Rieger System Police down on their heads. Aya felt through her shirt, fingers tracing that burn mark on her shoulder left by the sniper's fire. Just a few centimeters to the left, and it would have taken off her arm or put a hole right through her chest. If not for the Oleron, if not for Beans and Zan and Skipper, Aya would have died. No question. Clearance two of three acquired, she said. Received, Zan Schmeck said. When it came time to compare notes about the rescue, Skipper didn't know much more than Aya did. He'd gotten an anonymous call from the same freak from someone who knew that Aya was in big, big trouble and needed a save. He'd had a delivery job on New Witok, one full punch from Rieger II. Why Skipper risked his life and the life of his crew to save Aya? Because she was the best at what she did. Because Skipper thought rescuing her and making her the Oleren's comms operator was worth the risk. Because she was on the run from the law, had nowhere else to go, and that, it seemed, was a prerequisite for joining the Oleren family. Beans had a kill-on-sight order out on him from the Sklorno dynasty. Zan, too, was wanted, although Aya didn't know exactly why or by whom. Skipper had a past he wouldn't talk about, but he was always watching his back, and when the Oleran did land or dock somewhere, the ship always had a false registry, and he went by the name Melvin Morris. So they rescued Aya, offered her the comms gig. No free ride, though. Zan made it clear that on the Oleron you had to deliver. You had to excel. No charity cases. If Aya couldn't cut the duty, hunted or not, she would be back out on her own. Through her six weeks aboard, she had excelled. Thanks to her dedicated Radcast following, Aya had finally found a home. She hoped. Oh, if she could just find a way to fit in here. The Oleron was so delightfully messy. She loved it. Skipper's, if it ain't in the way, don't worry about it, approach extended throughout the round bridge. Near the ceiling, a row of metal brackets jutted inward, toward the center of the room. They'd once been used as mounts for those ancient flat panel displays. Now, a few of those brackets served as testament of the crew's camaraderie. A collection of stuffed animals, Souvenirs from the dozens of planets and systems the Ulern had visited on jobs gazed down, a staring jury of googly eyes. Another bracket was covered with printed photographs of the crew. Most were of Beans, in Schmeck and Out, and Zan, always in Schmeck, of course, and an occasional picture that included Skipper, most with a beer in his hand. Surprise, surprise. In the pictures, Skipper usually scowled or offered a sly half-smile. Zan's hovering drone always appeared in the near background, as if she knew when each snapshot was coming, and quietly slid behind the others. A few of the photos showed Aya's predecessor. Mikhail had been his name, a typical name for a nationalite, and, already, two pictures showed her. One of her in the rumpus room playing beer pong with Skipper, and one of her at her station her custom-made, fits-like-a-glove, modified key-tech station that Beans had made just for her. The bridge also featured dedicated stations for engineering and nav-ops tactical, where Beans and Zansat, respectively, and a captain's chair for Skipper. The chair was worn ragged. Skipper had kept it together with endless strips of duct tape, some blue, some red, most silver. A bottle holder was welded onto the chair's left armrest. A comparatively modern holotank rested in the bridge's center, bolted to the deck almost as an afterthought. Past the tank, a scratched, crystal windshield that separated the crew from the heat outside on Uzo Min's sand-strewn tarmac, from atmospheres of all kinds, from the vacuum of the void, or from the endlessly monochromatic gray of punch space. It was a rather grand window, I thought. She loved floor-to-ceiling anything, and it was apex, the way it curved up and down at the edges. There wasn't a truly clean surface or an ugly angle to be seen anywhere. The oleron was a misfit, like her, a rare bird, like her, resourceful, like her, filled with secrets, like her, dangerous, a predator hiding in plain sight. Like her. Third and final clearance acquired, Aya said. Received, Zan said. Aya's task was complete. Did she have time to work on a radcast? Yes, but first Aya felt the need to poke around a bit. There might be tidbits of information in Uzomen's flight records or active nav tracking. What was a radcast without a little new info? Her hands slid across the skins. She would see what gleaming goodies she could find. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella, written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook, at facebook.com slash scott sigler the stone wolves was directed by a sigler engineered by steve Rickyberg. copyright 2021 empty set entertainment theme music is the song the battle cry by the band super weapon